This is All the Cool Parts number two for March 5th, 2010. Hey everybody, welcome back to All the Cool Parts Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Joseph Landman, and this is our second podcast. Thanks so much to everybody who listened to the first one and sent me feedback and comments uh, through email, and uh, thanks to the people that left five-star reviews on iTunes. Um, We always appreciate that, and if you can get over there to do that yourself, um, it would be greatly appreciated and help us in the visibility and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, This week on the podcast, I'm presenting to you the St. Jacob's Choir recording of the Requiem of Mari Sturafley. As always, I encourage you to check out the show notes at allthecoolparts.blogspot.com throughout the show. And uh, without further ado, I will present the Requiem by French composer Mari Sturafley. Maurice Duraflay was born in Louviers in 1902 in France. He studied organ and composition at the Paris Conservatory when he was a student, and he studied composition with Paul Ducat, who you may know wrote The Sorcerer's Apprentice that you might have seen in Fantasia, in Disney's Fantasia. As far as a composer, he was extremely self-critical, and because of this, he wrote fewer than 20 pieces during his entire life. There's even a stretch of non-compositional activity that goes from the writing of his Requiem in 1947 to the writing of his four motets on Gregorian themes of 1960. Uh, So this is a 13-year span where he literally wrote nothing. As far as his career, he was known mostly as an organist, and um, he did tour extensively around Europe as an organist and played in all the biggest important churches in France and around Paris. It's it's really remarkable how few works he wrote over the course of his life. And all of these works, whether it be for organ or choir or piano or chamber group, they're all of the really the highest quality composition. Duraflay's Requiem was really heavily inspired by the Requiem of Gabriel Faure who had changed totally changed the concept of the Requiem Mass or the Mass for the Dead 
from the older model that was made famous by like Mozart and Berlioz. These Requiem Masses are really kind of fire and brimstone focusing on the Day of Judgment and, uh, you know, burning in an eternal hellfire and all this stuff. Berlioz's and uh, Faure's concept was a more contemplative and peaceful mass, focusing on eternal rest in a place of light and peace. Uh, this more closely identifies with the actual Latin word requiem, which literally translates to rest. In constructing this mass, Durfle creates this very timeless sound. If you listen to the harmonies that he uses, it clearly can't be anything other than 20th century, but at the same time, he creates this sense of timelessness uh, that makes the piece really hard to place in the history of music and as far as when it was written. And in part, he achieves this by using the original Gregorian chants that are associated with the Requiem Mass, the chants that would have been sung by monks, you know, in the monasteries a thousand years ago. This next excerpt I'm going to play you guys is from the Curie movement. Durfle uses an ancient technique here, um, often used in medieval and Renaissance choral music. It's the technique of imitation. And you'll hear that um, one voice enters on a melodic pattern, and then shortly after, another voice will enter an imitation. And um, he uses this to build up this contrapuntal tapestry of voices that chant this text over and over again as if in a quiet yet persistent pleading for mercy. The text of this example is, uh, well, all the text that he uses in the masses in Latin. In this text, Kyrie eleison, Christe eleison, Kyrie eleison, literally translates to Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy, over and over again. The next excerpt is from the Domine Jesu movement, and it's cast in two sections. The first section is almost like an exhausted pleading from the choir, and their text is Libera Eas de Ore Leones, which means freedom from the mouth of the lion, and Ne Absorbeat Eas Tartarus, which means do not let Tartarus swallow them. 
then it comes in in a second section which is more triumphant sounding very strong almost like their prayer has been answered and it repeats the libera eas de ore leones the freedom from the mouth of the lion and continues with libera eas de peones interni et de profundo lacu which means freedom from infernal punishment in the deep pit Continuing with the Domine Jesu movement, I just wanted to play you guys this excerpt of incredible baritone soloist Peter Matai and his amazingly powerful voice. And he seems to always know exactly how to sing, you know, the material based on whatever words he's trying to convey. And the text that he sings is Hostias et Preses Tibi Domine Laudis Offerimus. To sushipe pro animabus ilis, quadum hodie memorium facimus. And this translates to, O Lord, we offer you sacrifices and prayers and praise. Accept them on behalf of the souls whom we remember today. And he really does an incredible job of offering this up as a kind of solitary and humble offering to God on behalf of the dead. And now comes the Sanctus movement. This is one of my favorite moments of the entire work. In this example, you're going to hear just one single line sung over and over again, Hosanna in excelsis, which means Hosanna in the highest. Durifle creates one of the great buildups and climaxes of all time here. It starts simply in the women's voices, 
and slowly builds an intensity to a blinding climax on the word of Chelsea's. It is uh, really the true high point of the entire piece, musically and literally. Duraflay then slowly brings his climax back down again to ground level, the same way that he brought it up. After the Sanctus comes this Pie Jesu movement, and the whole movement is scored for solo mezzo-soprano sung here by Paula Hoffman. The other interesting thing about this movement is that throughout the entire Requiem, the only other instrument present besides the voices is the organ. In this one movement alone, Duraflay calls for the addition of a solo cello, which creates this, this amazing effect with the solo mezzo-soprano. The, the mezzo-soprano solo is very plaintive and it eventually settles on this single low note that she recites over and over again on the word requiem or rest. And Durfle's decision to add this solo cello in this movement was really inspired. The cello has a melancholy and pensive tone that beautifully complements the solo mezzo-soprano and accentuates the affectation of the entire movement.
Another example of this focus on rest and eternal rest comes in the Agnus Dei. The Sopranos and Mezzos start this movement in canon as another contrapuntal device used heavily in medieval and Renaissance music. And the voices eventually culminate on one of the most chilled out chords I've ever heard, uh, aptly used on the word requiem again, or the word rest, just really emphasizing this sense of rest and peace. In the Lex Eterna movement, Durifle further emphasizes the concept of eternal rest by having the choir all sing in unison on one single note, chanting the text, Requiem Eternum Dora Eis, Domine et Lux Perpetua Luceat Eis, which translates to, Grant them eternal rest, O Lord, and may everlasting light shine upon them. In the Liberame movement, Durifle has this cast, or the part you're going to hear, has it cast in three sections that sort of all happen continuously, and it was just a great variation, this one little excerpt. The first section, the men come in on a chant melody all together, so like they're praying on, on the, this text, which is, Liberame Domine de Morte Eterna in Die, Ile Tremenda, Quando celi movendi sunt et terra, which means deliver me, O Lord, from death eternal on that fearful day when the heavens and earth shall be moved. This is followed by the entire choir, and they build or create this buildup on imitative lines of counterpoint to this big climax. And this is on the text, Dum veneris judicare seculum per ignem, which means when thou shalt come to judge the world by fire. Directly following this climax, he moves to another baritone solo with uh, baritone Peter Matai. And the text that he sings is, Tremens factus sum ego et timeo dum discussio venerit atque ventura ira, which means I am made to tremble and I fear till the judgment be upon us and the coming wrath 
Matai really and masterfully conveys this trembling fear and wrath in his just just incredible performance. And finally, we come to the last movement of this Requiem, the In Paradiso movement, or In Paradise. In this final moment of the Requiem, Durfle creates what really does sound like a choir of angels, of this homophonic texture in these recitative, almost silvery harmonies. It's set to the text, Chorus Angelorum de Susipiat, which means, May a choir of angels receive you. And then following this, he concludes the Requiem, again emphasizing this concept of eternal rest on the text, Et cum Lazaro quondam paupare eternum habeas requiem, which means, and with Lazarus, who once was poor, may you have eternal rest.
Hey, performers, performing ensembles, and composers, All the Cool Parts podcast wants your music for All the Cool Parts Idol. If you're an emerging artist with a good quality recording and you'd like All the Cool Parts podcast to share it with the world, please email sound files and other details to allthecoolparts at gmail.com. Help me share your music with the world. I thought I'd take a little bit of time at the end of the show here to answer a couple of listener emails that I got concerning the first podcast where we talked about Paul Galbraith and his recording of the Bach Lute Suites. The first email comes from John A. And he basically asks the question, uh, are you sure about the suites not being written for lute? My answer to him was, we're not 100% sure. <laughs> we're we're like pretty sure. If any of them were written for lute, it would have been the C minor suite. And that one seems to be the most idiomatic for the instrument. But if you look at the other pieces like the Prelude Fugue and Allegro, for instance, the original key of this piece is E flat major. This is about the worst key for uh, guitar, certainly, and I think for lute, too. If there's any Baroque lutenist out there, that can correct me on this. Hey, feel free to drop me an email. And uh, it's just, there's clues in the suites that they're awkward to play on the lute and uh, not so awkward to play on the Lauten work. And this is all speculation, but it's sort of informed speculation. Then he came back and asked, how come they're called lute suites? <laughs> you know, if, if Bach wrote these for the Lauten work, why didn't he just call them uh, suites for Lauten work? That's a really good question. And uh, he points out that, you know, if they were written for Lauten work, but titled Suite for Lutes, you know, it's odd. And it is odd. I think, and I'm getting into the realm of total and complete speculation. So again, feel free to contact me or, you know, musicologists, keep your angry emails to yourselves. <laughs> um, I think... Bach did write these for Lautenwerk and for himself to play, but I think ideally they're written for lute, and ideally he wanted to hear them on lute. There's really zero evidence that any of these were played during Bach's lifetime. <clears throat> we know that he knew the great German Baroque lutenist Silvius Leopold Weiss, um, Weiss being spelled W-E-I-S-S, but again, there's no evidence, at least that I know of, that Weiss played any of these suites. Uh, we do know that Weiss knew Bach through one of Bach's sons. And uh, there's even cool stories about Weiss challenging Bach to improvisation offs or competition. That was one thing back back then in Germany and all the classical music world, really, is that classical musicians improvised. And this was one of the things that they were based on, one of the things that they were measured against. Even the child Mozart would, you know, dazzle people by improvising fugues and sonatas and stuff when he was like three or whatever. And um, reportedly Bach was the greatest improviser of his day. So great, in fact, that there's a story about there was one competition in Germany somewhere and... There was one dude, I can't remember his name, uh, who was 
the favorite, the champion, whatever. And he got wind that Johann Sebastian was coming to compete. And the guy reportedly hightailed it out of town. So it would have been a really awesomely cool thing to hear Silvius Leopold Weiss and Johann Sebastian dueling back and forth. You know, kind of like the last scene in Crossroads, you know, would have been kind of like Steve Vai and Ralph Macchio, but cooler. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it's really speculation, but it's informed speculation, like I said. So thank you, John A., for your question. And uh, the next email that we got was from Jerry G. He was nice enough to really go through the podcast and make a lot of great suggestions. One comment that he had was that he suggested I turn down my microphone when the music was playing because he could hear me breathing. Yeah, one clarification I want to make about the Galbraith recording and many, many classical music recordings, especially solo instruments that you might hear, this was not me breathing. <laughs> um, I don't have the mic turned on when the music is playing. This was actually Paul Galbraith that you can hear breathing. The classical music instruments, especially guitar, are very quiet, and in many recordings you can hear vocalizations and breathing from the performers. One of the most famous instances is pianist Glenn Gould's Bach recordings. Uh, you can hear him breathing and singing under his breath and making all kinds of noises. So yes, this was Galbraith himself and not me breathing. Uh, so that is our viewer viewer listener email for uh, uh, the first episode and um, hopefully I'll get some good emails concerning this podcast and we'll do those next time and that's going to do it for all the cool parts number two thank you all again for listening if you would like to email us we are at all the cool parts at gmail.com our show notes and website is at all the cool I am at anthonyjosephlandman.com, and you can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash anthonylandman, and also feel free to add me on Facebook. So thank you all very, very much. We will be back next week, and um, I'm going to let you go out on the very end of Maurice Durafle's beautiful Ubi Caritas from his Four Motets. We will see you next time. Mm -hmm.